The following is my explanation what happened. I'd been on my own for a while and getting kind of lonely and bored. And that's when I started shadowing, following. I started to follow people. Welcome to Now Playing, the movie review podcast. You're developing a taste for it. Hosted by Arnie, Jacob, and Stuart. They're college-educated, probably graduated when they're 21 or 22. Today, we are reviewing Christopher Nolan's following. We're very privileged to see it. It's very rare. This podcast is spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Anyway, down to business. (laughs) Business? Today we're discussing Following, starring Jeremy Theobald, Alex Haw, Lucy Russell, John Nolan, directed by Christopher Nolan. This is Arnie, the co-host who knows the kind of kinky voyeuristic shit men get into. Stuart in LA. And this is the host, creepily following right behind you, Jacob. That's you? (laughs) You're not supposed to notice me, I've done a bad job. (laughs) I am so happy, you guys. The night shift is over. Daylight has broken, and we are done talking about Stephen King crappy movies for a while. And yet, I feel like when we started Night Shift with those three dollar babies, aren't we reviewing a dollar baby today? (laughs) We've come full circle. Yeah, I, I do feel the same way. Indeed. We should preface by saying that I am very happy to welcome back Christopher Nolan, one of our great filmmakers of the current filmmaking era, to the program. We've recorded our thoughts on Inception and his Batman trilogy. To build up to Interstellar, we've decided to cover all of his works, including, yes, what appears to be little more than a student film, except he didn't go to film school. His first film, Following, made for 5000 bucks, American. That's $2,000 cheaper than El Mariachi. Well, yes, obviously you have proclaimed yourself as the Nolan fanboy on this podcast, calling him one of the greatest directors of the current generation. Where do I come down on Nolan? It depends on who you ask on our Facebook page, because... (laughs) As long as we leave prestige out of it, I think you could call yourself a Nolan fan. Oh, no, just based upon the Batman reviews that we've done. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Yeah, remember, he didn't like Batman Begins. I still forget that. And then I'm like, what? Oh, right. Well, no, some people call me the ultimate Nolan fanboy because of comments I made during the Burton ones. And then other people call me a Nolan hater because of comments I made during Batman Begins. So I'll call myself a moderate. I respect his work. Anything he makes, I'll be interested in. And I guess that would make him one of the greatest directors currently. I mean, who are you putting him up against? Michael Bay and Zack Snyder? He's sure. (laughs) But I don't know that in the annals of cinematic history, I would declare him one of the greats. But I'm interested in seeing what he's done. I've seen all of the films we're reviewing except for this first one and, of course, Interstellar, the last one. And, you know, I'm not a newbie. I've reviewed four Nolan films on this podcast already, the Batman trilogy and Inception. But you know what? I had seen some of these films before I really knew who he was. You know, Memento. Oh, yeah, that's that weird backwards movie. So I went and saw it. And Insomnia. Oh, that's when Robin Williams was... Like, doing serious stuff, that's the reason I saw it, not because of Christopher Nolan. You know, I was skeptical with Batman Begins, but Dark Knight, that solidified Nolan for me. But I haven't seen all these films like you, Arnie, this first one following I haven't seen. Prestige I haven't seen. I'll be the newbie there. I'll be able to referee that fight (laughs) that I feel we're going to get into. And, of course, Interstellar. But, you know, Nolan, I do recognize him, like, now, once I started paying attention to him as a director and, and what he does in his films. Someone whose films I would be looking forward to. Interstellar. I'd want to see that even if I wasn't doing this podcast. He's yet to make a bad movie, although he came really close with that last one. And I discovered him with Memento. And when I told Stuart, listen, if every time he makes a movie, you're going to put it on the now playing schedule, let's catch up. I thought we'd be starting with Memento. (laughs) I thought it was his first film. I still may claim at the end of tonight it is. And I saw it with that. But honestly, I kind of got him confused with Aronofsky during the early part of this century because they both came out early on with kind of the thrillers. Aronofsky made Pie, Nolan made Memento, and Aronofsky had been rumored to do Batman for a while, then Nolan did Batman. 
it took me a couple more movies from each of them to really get a distinct handle on who they are. It's a good thing you do as we get into following, because I definitely got an Aronofsky vibe in this student film. This one definitely brought a lot of pie back to me. Well, I've seen all his films in theaters. Believe it or not, this got a U.S. theatrical release about a month after Memento came out. Somebody at a second-run theater said, let's show the first one. And so they got a print of it, and I paid a full admission price to see this 70-minute movie. I think they had one of his shorts attached to it as well. But I've seen every single one of his films in theaters, oftentimes twice. Although this one I had only seen once. I watched it three times for this recording because on the Criterion Collection, not only does he have a commentary track, but there is a linear feature in which you can watch this movie in its chronological order and not in its mystery box construction. Oh, interesting. I know he did that for Memento, but I didn't know that that's his go-to gimmick. I wonder if he'll do that for Batman Begins. (laughs) I think a lot of signatures are here. I mean, he likes noir and crime stories. Typically, his movies are dramatic and chilly and cold, Kubrickian, perhaps. Yeah, non-chronological storytelling. Characters that are dealing with deception, disorientation, maybe they have insomnia, maybe they think they're Batman. You know, a fluctuating identity. I do think that if you are a fan of his work, yeah, we need to start here. You can see the roots of all of it in this little minor, like I said, $5,000 throwaway that he made over a year. It took him a year to shoot this. He'd buy a roll of film shoot for the weekend. Sometimes he didn't even have the money to process that film. He wouldn't know whether what he'd shoot next would have continuity or not. Must be why there's a hundred different edits in this thing. He made this with some college friends, basically for about a year shooting. No permits, just going out on the streets, two cameras, 16 millimeter film. He was a student of life. You know, he'd shot movies all his life. He had been working as a industrial filmmaker, making low-budget movies. About, you know, those corporate videos about, this is how you fold the burrito. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, but he was not a filmmaker and had gone to college, gotten a degree in writing. This is, as he describes it, the sum total of everything he could do in his amateur phase. He wrote it. He directed it, and he is the sole cameraman. Yeah, I noticed that the credits were short, and he was listed (laughs) for most things. I'm surprised he also wasn't the lead actor, the grip, the costume designer. (laughs) I did look to see if there's a cameo. There's a Nolan in this one, but it's not him, and I did wonder if he'd have to throw himself in as a character, because, yeah, this is done on the cheap. This is done as an indie film. Yeah, and I imagine not a lot of people probably see a movie this low budget. It's rare. Yeah, the only thing like it we've ever covered was those early Stephen King night shift stories, Frank Darabont's Woman in the Room, The Boogeyman. It's on that level. In fact, this movie costs less than those movies. And this, I still have trouble calling it a movie. I mean, it does not meet the length for a feature. 70 minutes? Aren't those old Disney cartoons 70 minutes? I feel like that is the minimum. I thought 80 was the minimum, and that's why Jonah Hex had 10 minutes of credits. <laughs> maybe by today's standards. I, I Those Disney films are decades old, so maybe it's changed. I feel like, yeah, 70 minutes, that is getting perilously low for a feature film. It's almost a TV special. So, Arnie, if it's so short, you should have no trouble racing through it. Did you follow following, and can you help us by giving us the plot summary? Yeah, I've had no trouble following it. But the movie is told in a series of flashbacks and parallel timelines that I'm sure we're going to discuss as we go through the film. For the sake of the plot summary, I'm going to make it chronological, though. Our main character is listed in the credits only as the young man, but he introduces himself as Bill, and so that's what he goes by for most of the movie. That's the name I'm going to give him when I talk about him. And the film starts with Bill telling someone about his strange habit of following people. He's bored, he's unemployed, he's an aspiring writer who's fascinated watching people, so he made a game out of it, just following random strangers on the street and trying not to be noticed. But he is noticed by one of his targets, a man who calls himself Cobb, a well-dressed robber who has a similar voyeuristic habit as Bill. Cobb doesn't just rob for the valuables, he enjoys secretly looking through people's intimate possessions, judging and measuring the people by what music they buy and what books they read. And Cobb takes Bill on a robbery and starts to train him in the art of breaking and entering, even letting Bill pick the next target. Bill first has Cobb rob Bill's own apartment, but Cobb seems to know what's up and plays it off like the apartment's owned by a poor college student and they gotta get out of there to rob the swanky apartment of a hot blonde. 
Cobb raids the blonde's panties, and Bill finds himself infatuated with the woman. He pockets a strip of photos as well as the panties, and he even keeps all the items they steal, telling Cobb he fenced them. Bill tries to imitate Cobb. He cuts his hair, shaves his goatee, and goes on robberies of his own, but he also keeps following. But now he's following the blonde, who he chats up and eventually sleeps with. And he learns she used to date an older crime boss, a club owner and pornographer referred to either as the bald man or the old man. She recounts how brutal the old man is, bringing one guy to her apartment and breaking his fingers before crushing his skull with a hammer. She tells Bill the old man is blackmailing her with some photos and asks Bill to rob the man, steal the photos from his safe. Bill approaches Cobb about the job, but when Cobb learns Bill has been seeing one of their marks, he beats the crap out of Bill and breaks off their partnership. Alone, Bill breaks into the bald man's office, opens the safe with a combination given to him by the blonde, and steals a bunch of money, as well as the envelope that supposedly has the photos. He's confronted by one of the old man's guards and knocks him out with a hammer. But he opens the envelope and sees the pictures aren't of the blonde. So he confronts the woman and learns that all along, she's been working with Cobb, her lover. During a robbery, Cobb was incriminated in a murder of an old woman, and so he trained someone in his methods to be a patsy for the police. The breaking and entering of the old man's office was to get Bill caught so the police would charge him with the murder. Desperate, Bill goes to the police himself, a detective to whom Bill was telling his story all along. But then the final twist comes. Even the blonde didn't know the true mastermind in all of this was the old man. There was no dead old lady. The blonde had been blackmailing the old man on the murder committed in her apartment, so the old man hired Cobb to kill the blonde. Cobb needed someone to take the fall, and that's Bill. The robber leaves just enough evidence in Bill's apartment, items taken from the robbery of the blonde's house, so that Bill is given evidence and motive. Then Cobb uses the hammer Bill used to beat the old man's guard to kill the blonde in the exact same way as the man was killed in her apartment. Fingers smashed first, then her skull. With Bill arrested for murder and the blonde dead, Cobb heads out into the London streets as credits roll. So that is the chronological plot. It's worth begging the question right up front. Would it be better if they told the story this way? Or is the movie's entire appeal lying in the fact that we bounce between about four different timelines, that we see Bill at any given moment at four different parts in his evolution? And were you guys fooled? Because, okay, the, the way I was writing this down in my notes, we got Bill, we find out his name, maybe. But then we have Daniel Lloyd, as he gets called, or Danny. And then we have Beat Up Guy, as I called him. I'm like, okay, Daniel's different than Bill. Is Beat Up Guy different than Daniel? Are those supposed to be two different people? It was confusing early on as we get these flashbacks and flash forwards and jumping all over the place. It was disorienting for me, trying to figure out who was who and whose story am I trying to follow here. I didn't have that problem. I have to say, I knew nothing about this going in. Nothing at all. I said, let's do... Nolan thought we were starting with Memento. Stuart put something called following on the list. I go to Netflix. There it is. I push play. So I had nothing going into this at all. Didn't even know it was black and white. So I obviously didn't know that it was going to be non-chronological. I caught on to that really quickly, though. And fortunately, I was able to keep up with the different timelines. Even though Bill changed his hair, changed his beard, the actor conveys enough and is familiar looking enough that I knew it was him even when he had long hair and short hair, you're able to tell the difference. Yeah, I was. And I usually, especially with brand new characters on the screen, identify them by hair. So I don't know why I was able to keep up with this guy. And part of the problem for me might have been, it's this is stark black and white. There's not a lot of grayscale here. So things get washed out very easily. And maybe that's why it's tough for me to tell they, they were the same person. Yeah, what just confused me was the hopping around of the timeline. I'm like, he's wearing the long leather coat again and has the beard again. Now he doesn't. He's waking up and he's spitting out gloves. Now he's not. I knew this was told in flashback because he sits there in the opening with who we'll find out's a police detective saying he followed people. But the multiple parallel storylines, it was about 10 minutes before I realized exactly how much like Memento this story really is. Only in Memento, there's a plot driven reason for its non-chronological storytelling in here. Honestly, it's a gimmick. Yeah, to a degree, I'd agree with you. I mean, Christopher Nolan is an English major. He says that he studies literature, not film. To him, it was not weird to bounce around. There are many, many fine novels that use this device and nobody thinks twice. But to use it in a film, 
It isn't unheard of at the end of 90s. We've obviously had Tarantino do it. He's coming on the heels of Guy Ritchie, Lockstock, Danny Boyle, Train Spotting. I do feel like there was a precedent for it. But yeah, it would feel for the average filmgoer, this would be an unusual experience. And I think it's part of the joke of the title. You're going to have trouble following this. Yes. The point is you're going to have to work really hard. And Nolan says you really do need to see it twice. Most Nolan movies need to be seen twice in order, I think, to be fully consumed and appreciated. And I'll admit I have seen this twice for this. I saw it once and I really did think I followed it. But I knew that there would be things I caught again on a second viewing. So I did go back. I mean, hell, it's short. I didn't know how long it would be. When it was over in 70 minutes, it was real easy to find the time. Yeah, I think there is a visual language when you're doing flash forwards, flashbacks in film. I don't know if he has that down. Now that you're saying he never went to film school, that wasn't his background, maybe that makes a little bit more sense here. Because, yes, as someone that wanted to be a writer, you do that those kind of time gimmicks all the time when you're writing. I think there's a certain way to do it in film. And, you know, I think of Reservoir Dogs, that's one where it's very clear where you're jumping around. Here, it, especially at the beginning, and once I kind of figured out the mechanics and who was who, then I was able to follow along. But yeah, the first maybe 20 minutes, it could be disorienting. It's hard to follow, as you said, Stuart. Yeah, I agree with the disorientation. But to answer your question, Stuart, I don't think, and you saw this chronologically, you said you can answer if this is right. But my suspicion would be that it would pull a lot of the punch. The strength of this movie is in the reveals. And since we see it out of order, and it's not entirely from Bill's point of view. We have these scenes told out of order from the point of view of Cobb and the blonde who are conspiring against him. It's a very noir film. And in that regard, knowing that early would completely undermine the huge twists that just pile upon each other climax after climax in the last five, ten minutes. Well, it's difficult to say entirely because I saw the linear version after I saw the original, so the twists were already blown. But you may be surprised. I think that the linear version is a more dramatic-driven story, whereas, yes, watching it in its original form, it's a mystery, and with lots of misdirects. I do think that the way it's assembled, I get that you found that the character was hard to identify, but I do think that Nolan has a really nice visual style to keep you moving through this, that when it jumps through times, characters are often matching action. Like, people are going downstairs, and then they're going downstairs at another time. And so, you feel like the same thing is happening. You're being carried along, but you oftentimes don't know where you are. By the same token, there's a lot of insert cuts. Like, all of a sudden, he's laying on the ground spitting out gloves. That was the first time where I'm just like, wait, 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 yeah. what, what is going on here? Me too. That montage you're talking about is the same in the linear cut as it is in the original cut, which is to say he doesn't change the beginning at all. He wants you to be totally baffled and grabbed by the beginning. And he wanted voiceover to be carrying it because he knew the sound recording wasn't good. He felt like this kind of jarring visual mashups and having voiceover before you saw the characters talking would be a way of bringing people into the story. You talk about the sound recording. Yeah, Jacob, you had trouble knowing who was who in the screen. I had trouble understanding their words. I turned on subtitles. I finally had to turn on subtitles because I was having the same problem. Yeah, the thick British accents mixed with the really bad sound recording. I mean, it's an amateur film and it sounds it. It does not have a good audio mix. And so I just really had a lot of trouble catching every word they said. And I did find myself on the second viewing rewinding a couple of times. I, sh I should have turned on subtitles. I just didn't even think about it. Yeah, subtitles is the way I watched it. I will say this, though. I liked the music, especially that opening piece of music. It, it very industrial feel. It did take me back again with the stark black and white. It took me back to Aronofsky's Pie with his Clint Mansell and, and electronic uh, soundtrack. I dug the music. It felt dirtier here, and I don't know if amateurish is the right word, but it felt more raw, and I did dig the music in this film. David Julian will do the music for Memento, Insomnia, Prestige. They stayed along and collaborated for many other projects. Plus, he did Cabin in the Woods. He is a working film composer, and even though this is done on a minimal score, I like it. It's, it is industrial. It's got a real clang to it with a little bit of Middle Eastern screeching in there as well. The opening does, but where the score really impressed me was throughout the film, how it's really melodic. And based upon that, I mean, I think that they really had something going there musically. Yeah, the opening was very disconcerting, and it kind of reminded me of the same kind of musical tones, really where it's not musical, but it's mood setting. 
that he'd work with Zimmer on for the Batman movies. But during the film itself, the way some of the crescendos swelled, I thought it was really well done. He must have had a very good friend to give him a score on the cheap for this was the thought I had because this sounded expensive. It may have been one of the highest quality portions of the whole film. Although the actors aren't bad either. I have to say, you mentioned El Mariachi, and I think back to Clerks when these directors are just grabbing whoever they can. Usually, you get some pretty bad performances. Here, I'm completely brought in by Bill and Cobb. They have actors here who really play to these roles very well. I love the scene very early on when... Cobb catches Bill following him and confronts him at the restaurant. And in the hands of cardboard community theater actors, that could really fall flat. But here, I get the nervousness and I love the interplay. I love the mystery right away. Why is Cobb not kicking his ass? Why is he sitting there ordering a cup of coffee? What's the game? Yeah, he tells him to look in the bag and it's a bag full of, you're thinking money, jewels. No, it's a bag of UCDs. I think Bill is much more captivating than Cobb. I think we're meant to. I mean, Bill is the character that's doing this. Cobb is just a thief, or so we're led to believe. But Bill, how relatable is his hobby, really? I mean, I totally get it. It's the state of an artist. He's a wannabe writer. This is what you do when you're searching for stories. You're really hunting people. It's thrust upon you how much you don't know about the world and how much you have to guess and presume. You do find yourself trying to chase it out of people. I feel like this is a common interpretation of artists. Typically in movies, I see them being played as photographers and not writers. But yeah, this feels very much like a blow up or blowout or some of the classic movies uh, about this theme. I do think Bill's story would be better. His character would benefit from more production money in this. If this could go a little bit longer, I, again, with the film, show me, don't tell me, but everything is voiceover. You know, he tells us right away, I broke a rule. That's why this happened. If you could have played that out, why is he following these people? Just show me that more. I never really understand why he breaks his rules and starts following Cobb more than once. Like, I, I wanted more character depth there, but everything is just told to me. Bill, what we know about Bill is what Bill wants us to know about him. I actually thought the first time I saw this that Cobb and maybe any of the people that we met were all fictitious. You know, we have intercuts of him at a typewriter, and he's looking for inspiration in other people. Are these fantasy projections? You know, there's a picture of Marilyn Monroe on his wall, and later we see that this woman he's following, she wasn't blonde originally. She was dark-haired. She went bottle blonde, like Marilyn Monroe. I'm wondering, are these his fantasies come to life? I never thought they were fictitious, but I did wonder what the game was. I knew there was something dangerous. The way that Cobb came up, and again, having no idea where the story was going, I felt like Bill had opened up something dangerous, that he had followed the wrong guy. And so I become really weirded out when Cobb's like, let's go rob a place. And I honestly thought the way the story would go is Cobb sets him up really early and he spends the rest of the film getting out of it. Yeah, I didn't expect this to become Fight Club with Cobb as Tyler Tearden. Now I know the book was out by now, the film wouldn't come out the following year, but it gets a real weird vibe once we find out about Cobb and he's sitting there, he's like, you take things away from people so they know what they have and as they have to spend that insurance money to rebuild their CD collection, they'll really reflect, I didn't expect this type of thief all of a sudden. This is the best part for me. It's it's why you would like Cobb, right? I mean, we could predict that he'd be a bad guy and certainly much later, it's just a question of how bad is he? We know he's the bad guy. We know he's screwing over Bill. But yeah, in the beginning here, the idea that it's about a philosophical pursuit. They're not stealing things to really make a profit. Yeah, they take some CDs because back in the late 90s, you could actually sell yes. CDs <laughs> and get, someone would pay you money for them. It's, it was incredible. Wow, the days. Oh, I did that many a times. Not with stolen CDs, just my own. But the key between him and Tyler Durden, though, I do see that same kind of anti-materialistic attitude. But Cobb also just likes to fuck with people. He leaves panties in a guy's coat just so that not only will they lose their stuff to figure out what they have, they'll lose their relationships to find out what they have individually. This is not something where they're going to bond and be made stronger. He wants to decimate every center of their life and just leave them to rebuild in what the claims of self-embetterment. 
Maybe, or maybe Cobb's just an asshole. But if you approach it from the artistic standpoint, I don't see it as malicious at first. I see this as the next step. And what Bill is being passive, he's watching people, but when they go inside, that's the end. This guy is willing to go in and dig up their box. You know, he has a big speech about how we all have private areas. He refers to it as a box where we keep the things that are valuable to us and that we even have a secret wish for someone to unearth them and to show them to us. I buy into this. I do not think that what they're doing is wrong. I actually, I'm with it. Much like Fight Club, at the beginning of this, I'm thinking that the nerd is going to benefit by having the alpha male show him the ropes. But if you notice, the very opening shots of the movie is of a male's hands with the plastic gloves on it, putting the blonde's box together. If you paid attention to that, you would know that that jewelry and those photos and all of those things were not constructed by her. They were constructed by cops. I didn't put that together. I thought it was just a flash forward because we'll find out Bill becomes obsessed with the blonde and that was just him going through her stuff. After I got to the end of this film and knew what had happened, that's how I constructed it. But that does make sense that Cobb would be constructing this entire story you know, hey, these boxes are really special, and he put together this box that would get Bill to become obsessed with the blonde. See, and I didn't get that it was Cobb's hand even on rewatching. What I took it as was, yeah, a flash forward to when Cobb is about to give everything back to her. And the thing that really sets it off is there's a seahorse, and that's really weird to see at all. And so later on in the film, when we see the seahorse, it's Bill who's holding it, and so I'm like, oh, so that's who was at the beginning. But yeah, now that you say that, that makes a lot more sense that it's Cobb's hands with the gloves and everything building it as the trap. That's a, again, this is a movie that will be rewarding on multiple options. I especially like in Nolan films, rewatching for the dialogue. There's so many lines that on the surface mean one thing. When you rewatch the movie again and again and listen to every word, all of a sudden you realize... There are characters that never lie, and they just, you don't think about it at first, and then when you know their whole stories, you realize there's so much more. Like Cobb, he's like, are you only a thief? Oh, no, I do some other things. Yeah, you find out he's a contract killer. <laughs> yes. This is just the tip of the iceberg, he says to him early on. It's like, it's so true. You've got such bigger plans for this man than you're letting him know. But yeah, they tell you right from the get-go. There's another clue, too. They go into that first apartment, and he plants those panties. Those are the blonde's panties. He's already been there. That was telling us that he knew that blonde, that they were in cahoots, long before we ever learned that. Yeah, when they go to rob the blonde later on, and they grab those panties, I'm like, oh, wait, is that house? I am actually sitting here trying to put this in chronological order. Do they go to that other couple's house after this? I'm like, well, no, they can't. That was his first robbery. But yeah, I did take that. That was one of his signatures. He steals underwear so he could plant it somewhere else. Here's the one thing that I'm missing. Now, we obviously know by the end of this that Cobb is trying to seduce Bill into being like him. Wouldn't it be easier to create a box that he would fall in love with if he knew more about Bill? Is there any reason to think that he should know anything about what Bill would want in a woman? Well, again, my problem is I don't know anything about Bill. Yeah. I need to know more about him to really be absorbed by this story. Cobb, okay, he, he's a flamboyant personality. I could see wanting to have a pint with him, hang out with him a bit, but why stick with him? I mean, if I'm a writer, I don't know. Is he getting material from all that? I never know what Bill is really getting out of this relationship and why he sticks around and why he keeps going. And the actors give me something that's so totally subtextual. But again, it goes back to Fight Club. If you watch Fight Club and you listen to our podcast review of that from early this year, I always thought that Ed Norton was jealous of Marla, not because Tyler was with Marla and... Ed Norton wanted to be with Marla, but because Marla was closer to Tyler than Norton was. And here, watching this, I think I had some of those flashbacks because what I take Bill to be is a totally empty person who is desperate for validation. We kind of see that in the second robbery where Bill takes Cobb to his own house. He wants that analysis and validation that his CDs are good, his books are good, that he's a writer. So the way Cobb sells this blonde is like, oh, isn't she hot? Oh, look at these panties. Take a whiff of those and smelling them. Cobb sells this woman as being attractive. Bill, I don't know if Bill's ever really into the blonde. 
so much as Bill is idolizing Cobb. He wants to be like Cobb. And if Cobb likes the blonde, then the blonde must be worth liking. Mm-hmm. No, I, I get that. There definitely is some kind of relationship there. Early on, he uses the F word. Are you some kind of faggot or something like that? That remains a subtext. Perhaps that's the real attraction here. But yes. Well, it doesn't have to be gay. I'm just saying like idolatry. No, I I understand. But it is. I'm just saying for subtext. Yes, he may have some kind of attraction to Cobb, however you want to label it. And it's very clear he wants his approval. Yeah, he takes him to his house. Got to point out, the guy's got a Batman sign on his door. Yes, I noticed that right away. Yeah, Batman on the door and Jack Nicholson the shining on the wall. But yeah, the Batman symbol. I didn't know Nolan was a Bat fan before being a director of the series. Obviously, he was. Yeah, that it was a surprise to me as well. I also didn't know what a UB40 was. I thought it was a bad uh, pseudo-reggae band from Britain. That's not what it was? I really thought that he had UB40 tickets. (laughs) That's what I thought. Red wine. (laughs) No, it's unemployed benefit form number 40. It's for what you fill out when you want a welfare check. Well, there you go. The more you know. And our London listeners are like, you fucking gold yanks. Just call them food stamps. (laughs) But here's where some of the non-chronology is kind of cool. Yeah, while they're there... Cobb breaks an artist figurine, which is symbolic of what he's going to do to this wannabe artist. But we have a scene earlier in which he's brought the blonde to that apartment. I'm just going to call her Marilyn because I think she's supposed to represent Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn gets to that apartment and she's like, oh, look. And she sees that it's broken. They do a lot of that kind of thing of showing you the aftermath before they show you what happens. And I think that keeps you on your toes. It makes you pay attention to things in a way that you wouldn't when it's told chronologically. Yeah, I definitely like picked up on posters because when they're robbing Bill's place, I, I got the sense that Cobb's like, oh, this is a really uninteresting person. And Bill's like, no, he's a banker. And, and Cobb just wants to get out of there. And then a few scenes later, Bill is typing. I'm like, oh, those are the same posters. He had him rob his own place. So yeah, it, you got to pay attention. You know how I knew this is one of the very first scenes is Bill in his apartment. And I'm like, why does he have a fucking Dewey Decimal card catalog behind him? That was the telltale side. If we were in his apartment, there was a library card catalog drawer set. I still don't know why he has it, but yeah. Yeah, they go for a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, no, they're neat. Yeah, and it's, you know, a relic of libraries and writing and all of that. It shows you someone that has a deep passion for artistry. I mean, he's got Rothko posters up. I mean, this guy, yeah, he really, really wants to be validated as an artist. And I think he takes to this because he sees the artistry in it. He doesn't feel like what he's doing is thievery. It feels like art. He's showing people what their lives are worth, which is what he hoped to do with writing. Yeah, I mean, the two of them have a lot in common. I think that's part of the reason why Bill latches onto him. Bill obviously has no friends or anything. Otherwise, he wouldn't pick up the hobby he does. And that he analyzed people by following and Cobb analyzes people through their stuff, I think is a big thing there. But yeah, I'm very confused early on with this blonde who he meets in a club and just kind of picks her up and she's dating the old man pornographer, but still agrees to go home with Bill. It's all really unsettling. And I thought she was just a random mark. And later on, I wasn't sure, were they robbing the blonde? Because, I mean, earlier Cobb had said to Bill, pick anyone you want. Were they robbing the blonde because Bill picked her? Because he'd followed her? No, no, it turns out he follows her because they robbed her. I love the layers of the onion being peeled back in this movie. Again, that's the editing. Yeah, The editing told us early that he made the mistake when he started following the blonde. So when we cut out of a scene saying, okay, you pick the next place, and we see the blonde, we think that he's picked her. But no, that's leading us away. We're following the misdirection that Nolan's throwing at us. Cobb very much wants him to fall for the blonde. The blonde is in on it. But we don't know that. We're jumping around as we're watching him learn the ropes into different versions of himself. This Daniel Lloyd character, we'll call him, the the nice guy in the suit who seems to have it together. And then there's also a beaten up criminal version of him, one that it becomes evident that he's going to rob the nightclub owner that's harassing this blonde woman. Yeah, I did like the reveal, you know, before Bill becomes Daniel Lloyd, cuts his hair, 
you know, they go out to eat and Cobb gives him that credit card, D. Lloyd. And he's like, just sign it. You know, you can use it wherever you want. I, I did like that little connection. I'm like, oh, Daniel Lloyd, here's the card. You know, I do like, as you're watching this puzzle come together, these puzzle pieces do fit so nicely. And it is satisfying to see all these different payoffs as you're playing it backwards and forward in your mind. Yeah, it's just, it's great for those who pay attention. But let me just warn listeners, this is an active viewing experience. For anyone who says, I like to turn my brain off and watch a movie, (laughs) I'll tell you right now, not recommend and don't even listen to the rest of the podcast. And I don't think Christopher Nolan wants you to watch this film either. I can't think of a film that he's made where they are just mindless entertainment. He is always provocative about the way that he assembles his stories. Even when they're chronologically told, I do feel like, yeah, he's wanting you to dig deeper and to work with him here. The misdirects are the fun, and that's why I do like the way that this is non-chronological. We get the impression as she talks about this guy she used to be seeing but doesn't want him to see her now with other guys is really a dangerous criminal. He's a gangster. He came into her apartment and beat someone to death with a rubber hammer. Uh, It wasn't rubber. (laughs) That's a little detail (laughs) from the movie itself. They wanted to use guns, but Christopher Nolan said you can always spot a fake gun in a low-budget movie. So they had somebody construct a rubber hammer, and it... More or less, I think it looks like a real hammer. They cut so much, it's hard to know. It fooled me, but did you guys believe this story about the crime boss? Because this was a flashback told from the blonde's point of view. Instantly, I felt unreliable narrator. I wasn't sure if this guy even was a crime boss. He didn't even seem to really acknowledge the blonde. Does he even know the blonde? Is she full of shit? I didn't know at all that she'd be in league with Cobb, which I would have known in a chronological edit. Yeah, I bought that she had been and lover or was trying to get away from this old bald cunt, as he's called. I didn't buy this whole murder that she witnessed, though. Yeah. That, to me, just seemed random that these associates would walk into her apartment and kill a guy in front of her and just leave this bloody rug there. Like, that just seemed odd to me. I'm like, something's up here. I mean, obviously, if you're being an active viewer and watching this, you know something's up. There's just so so many pieces moving around. But to me, that one really stood out. I'm like, I don't buy that story. It just seems so out of left field all of a sudden to go into someone's house and kill someone else and then walk out. Oddly enough, it's the one thing that we're expected to understand at the end did really happen. Really? Yeah, she really did date him and they really did kill a guy there. Very conveniently on a throw rug so she could just kind of roll it up and throw it out. No, she didn't throw it out. That's how she blackmailed. She was blackmailing him with it. Yeah. Well, yes, but my point is, is that the, whoever owned that apartment that they were filming in that weekend did not want them to spill the blood on the real run. <laughs> ah, well, I know, and I got when the movie ended that this was all real. It was during the movie itself that I didn't believe it was necessarily real, that she might be playing some kind of game because he robbed her. She might be a model, they said. It did seem awfully weird that her lover... This mob boss pornographer would choose to kill someone in her apartment. But no, it did end up being true. The one thing I was suspicious of was the thing I shouldn't have been. Yeah, that's, I think this movie all over is that it makes you believe the lie. And the one that I'm believing is, okay, if this guy is dangerous and we know later that Bill has a black eye and is going to get beat up, that will be the guy that does it. You know, he's watching Marilyn's apartment and the guy leaves and he's obviously getting closer and closer. He wants to help her out with her problem and she's told him that the nightclub owner is blackmailing her. That's why she's still in a relationship with him. I'm thinking it's the nightclub owner that's going to give him the black eye. It's a surprise, but maybe not so much by the time we get there. We know Cobb's a bad guy, but I didn't think he'd be the one to give him the shiner. Yeah, I completely thought it was the mob boss that would beat him up like that. I mean, it just is what makes sense. Cobb seems like an ally. I, like Bill, eventually get to trust Cobb. I didn't trust him initially, But yeah, why does he kick Bill's ass? What is the exact motivation there? Maybe there were some lines said I couldn't understand. I genuinely believe it was jealous rage. Uh, The fact that the woman that he's using to bait Bill actually has gone forward and slept with him, I think that pissed him off. I think that he was angered to find out that Bill had his woman. That might be, but he also says to the blonde, did you sleep with him? And the blonde's like, well, you told me to. And he corrects her. He says, I didn't tell you to. I said, if necessary. 
I mean, I think that he has a bit of a jealous quarrel there. He needs to make a break. He knows that he wants to train this guy, and at a certain point, he needs to let him loose and do this job solo so that he can get caught. That's the whole point. And so he needed to make a dramatic exit, but it didn't have to be violence. But maybe that's also the point. This is around the same time that we find out the story is that they want him to take the fall for a burglary that Cobb committed a few weeks ago where the body of an old woman was found. She doesn't believe that he had anything to do with hurting that old lady, but the cops do. But, of course, by this point, if he's going to beat up his friend, we think that he's probably a killer. He probably killed that old woman, and now he wants Bill to take the blame. Well, and the way I took it, you know, going back to that subtext you're talking about, Arnie, is at this point, when they're on that rooftop, Bill tells Cobb that he wants to rob that bar. He wants to do it alone. He's breaking up with Cobb. And so I did take it as kind of a upset that the student's breaking away and going to make his own career. And, you know, can you trust that he'll keep his mouth shut? And so he, it's like getting out of a gang. You got to get jumped out. I got all of that. And I also got, like, later on, Cobb's other reasons for doing it. I mean, he needs bill to go off on his own he needs bill to do the final job on his own but yeah if i was bill i'd be like what did what the fuck did i do <laughs> that seemed like an extreme reaction from bill's point of view and the knowledge he had at that moment you know my first distrust it's a silly thing it's such a little moment but the first moment where i really started to think Cobb was going to be a negative influence was when they were at his squatter place and he gives him a beer and he shakes it up first and bill has no idea so you know he gets spritzed when he opens it it's a silly thing it's a silly prank but there's something about that felt mean and it was the first tip that made me think that he was he was setting up this guy for a lot more well and for me there's a scene earlier when bill is in danny lloyd mode in his suit and he's at the blonde and i i guess this is when they actually have sex he goes into her room and they start making out and you see her she just opens her eyes mid make out and kind of just looks i don't know if Cobb is watching them or what but she just has this distant look i'm like ooh, something's up here what that look told me is she's not into it what is she looking at why is she doing it if she's not into it i didn't know but it was this dead-eyed, I'm kissing you, my eyes are wide open, and I'm looking at something else, stare. It's instantly told me not to trust her. And that happened before the story about the mobster. And that probably is a big reason why I didn't trust anything that came out of the blonde's mouth the rest of the movie. Plus, you're in a noir movie. I mean, detective movies, there's always that femme fatale that's so seductive, and it's her sexual magnetism. That ultimately makes her dangerous. I think we're meant to think that she's so awful because that's just the genre we're in. Nolan turns that on its head. She is working with Cobb to frame this guy, but she doesn't think he's actually going to go up the river. They're never going to be able to prove that he did a robbery that he didn't do. It's just going to free her lover from suspicion. That's all that she thinks is going to happen. Never say never. They can free him up for a murder he didn't do successfully. Yes, but she doesn't know that because she doesn't know she's going to be a murder victim. Her role in this is relatively innocent, I gotta say. As innocent as a, yeah, film noir, femme fatale, blackmailing, black widow can be. No, no, no. A femme fatale would be the one sticking the knife in. She would be doing the killing. This woman basically just wants her boyfriend not to go to jail. And she wants to keep blackmailing her former boyfriend, though. That is what makes her more evil. That's evil? Somebody kills someone in the room and you use that as... I see that as protection. I don't know what she's getting for money, but I also see it as, like, they're not going to hurt her. Yeah, there's a different honor code when it's thieves amongst themselves. I don't have a problem with that. My question is this. So she's come up with this whole story that she's being blackmailed, that there's this envelope in the safe at the bar... I guess, how does she think that envelope got in there? We'll find out it's not really blackmail, but if she thinks she's in on this whole thing with Cobb, somehow that envelope would have to get in there without she knowing that the old man put it there. That is the one piece that I'm still trying to put together. I think that that worked because she knew there was an envelope. What's in it doesn't matter. And it's during that robbery she thinks Bill's going to get nicked. So I think that that's all it took is she just needed to get him in there. Never thought he might even get into the safe, let alone get out with the envelope and the money. That's exactly right. And yeah, worst case scenario, if he does, well, he was told 
if he loved her, not to open those photos. They're so full of horrible, demeaning pictures of her. She doesn't want to be seen that way. She's counting on him being so in love with her that he'll just give them to her and, and it'll be fine, even if he gets away. But she doesn't think he will. And I don't either. When the big guy comes walking up while he's uh, taping all this money to himself. I thought that was Cobb. I really thought that that was Cobb walking up. It's dark. It, I could barely make him out. I thought Cobb was coming after him. It was hard to tell. I did think it was going to be Cobb and that would be the reveal that he actually killed Cobb. But that's not what happens. I do find it funny that there's a line early on that you always take a bag. You don't bring a bag with you. You take a bag from the house that you're robbing. So that's what Bill does at this park, except there's no bags anywhere. I wonder if Cobb, like, went around and made sure there's no plastic bags for him to get, because that is comical that he can't steal this money because he has nowhere to put it. Yeah, I think that's got to be his prank, right? No bags, but here's some tape. Let's see him get away with it. And he does. That was kind of amusing to see him tape it all to himself, like the Michelin man by the time it was over. (laughs) (laughs) It reminded me a little of Memento, you know, the extreme of going and tattooing messages on yourself. It feels similarly absurd. Yes, I, I basically think Memento is a big budget remake of this movie, but talk more about that next week. But yeah, this is then when the reveals really start to come because he's got the money. He goes back to the blonde. He opens the envelope. It's not even her in it. I watched this movie twice. Is what's in that envelope at all relevant or is it just woman not blonde? Uh, I just thought it was like random modeling pics of her or something. So it wasn't even her. She knew that he had photos of her, but they're not pornographic photos of her. So that was her. Yeah. Yeah. When she was a brunette. See, that fucked me up. I didn't know who the brunette was. I just knew it wasn't the blonde. I didn't know why these pictures would even be in a safe, but whatever. I take it to mean that Cobb sniffed out Bill and said, your type is Marilyn Monroe and got her to dye her hair for this job. That like that was part of the fantasy is you can have this Marilyn Monroe figure and the fact that she has this scandalized past when she was a brunette. I, I think that he was playing into that. We don't have enough knowledge about who Bill is to know what his type is, but I do believe Cobb knows what his type is and has constructed it in her box. So to speak. But the one, yeah, okay. (laughs) But the one thing that I find hard to buy, the one detail that just isn't jiving with me is, did they really set him up for this thinking that they would be okay with the nightclub owner's goon getting sent to the hospital? Like, they thought he'd get away, right? If you're a mob boss, I don't think you care really about your goons. That's their job to take the fall. I think that the mob boss fully intended that goon to get hammered. Yeah, you'd have to. Yeah, yeah. It's the only way to get the fingerprints on the hammer. And the mob boss wanted the blonde killed a very specific way. Right, exactly. So they'd have to have wanted them both dead. Or at least been okay with the bouncer not coming back next week. Yeah. Yeah, but I think it says he just ended up in the hospital. He lived through it. Right. It's a tough life being a goon. Here is my thing. I've enjoyed the puzzle. But it is a puzzle. And this reminds me of another Nolan film. One, it may be my favorite one. Uh, it, it certainly is now. It may be my favorite by the end of this retrospective, but that is The Dark Knight. This is a Joker story where the Joker comes up with these elaborate plans, Cobb's the Joker. Everything has to go exactly right for it to work. Again, it seems like you could come up with an alibi a lot easier, easier way to kill the blonde. This is complicated and I've enjoyed the puzzle, but I need to get something out of this. If I'm going to watch this fantastical caper, I want to be able to get something out of it by the end of the film, and I don't know if I do. Is it really that complex? All they needed is for Bill to get a hammer. No, no, they needed someone that wanted to follow the methods of Cobb that would eventually cut their hair because they're so paranoid of getting caught, and then go and break ties with Cobb while falling in love with the blonde, going to rob the the bar, bring that hammer, kill the, the bouncer, then drop that hammer so Cobb can get it, kill the blonde with, uh, and then hope he goes to the cops to confess this all so he looks like the murderer. This is complicated. Yeah, I'm with Jacob on this. I do feel like this makes Cobb a fantastical creation, that this no longer has a reality, that you go, it's a movie reality, it's a pot boiler here. He started out as Tyler Durden, he's become Kaiser Sose. He's the phantom hitman who can sweep in and do these elaborate things. Come on. It's much easier to kill a blonde, right? We don't even know her name. They- <laughs> I could kill a blonde easier than this, and I've never killed one. All they needed to do was to get that rug back and or kill her. You didn't need to involve Bill at all. 
Yeah, get a fake maid to go clean her apartment and steal the rug. Problem solved. Yeah. What's disappointing for me about this revelation is it's all about the twist. Typically in stories where you have characters confronting their identity, it gets the real philosophical notions about who we are. And this movie started out really asking those questions. Do my material possessions, are they valuable? Would I replace them if a burglar came in and broke them? And all of that's kind of forgotten here at the end. Here, it's just a very clever way of wrapping it all up very tidy. I like it as a twist, but it sort of diminishes the all effect. It it started out feeling like this had a, a real powerful story to tell, and it ended up just kind of being an amusing puzzle. And I'm the opposite. I think some of those ideas that you mentioned... Yeah, they were said. I never felt that's what these movies were about. Because of the structure of this movie, 100% the editing, I was drawn in by the puzzle. And the question is, was I relieved at the end of the puzzle? Absolutely. You mentioned Kaiser Soze. Love the usual suspects. And I got that same kind of, oh my god, reaction at the end of following that I got at the end of The Usual Suspects for the first time. And it's been probably since The Usual Suspects that I felt that shocked and that I can't believe that's how it went, ending of a film. So any recommendation I give this movie is based upon the ending. I think that's the strongest part of this movie. And and for me, this feels very late 90s. Usual Suspects, Fight Club, Memento, The Sixth Sense, you know, all these films where It's about that twist. And that's fine. I like the puzzle. I want to see what that puzzle, I want to see what the picture on that puzzle is afterwards. And if you just have an intricate puzzle going on in a twist and there's nothing to show me, nothing to reveal about myself or about these characters, it's lesser to me. And and so this is lesser to me because I don't know anything more about Bill. Everything's been taken away from him. What has he found? If that's the line that we hear over and over at the beginning, you take it away so you could find out what you have. I don't know what Bill has at the end. He has a dead body. He's got a lot of explaining to do. (laughs) He has a prison sentence. Yeah, but Cobb, he disappears into the movie universe. Uh, You know, like I said, he had no reality to him. So, yes, they just kind of turn him into a myth. He'll get his comeuppance in Memento when he's played by Joey Pantoliano. (laughs) So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend following the movie, not the hobby? Jacob. You know, like you, Arnie, I went into this totally blind, not knowing what I was going to get. And that's the way to see this. If you haven't watched it and you're waiting for I recommend, sorry, it's better to go in and watch this not knowing. You're already fucked. (laughs) Yes. There's still a lot of nuances to learn, but yeah, we kind of fucked you over. (laughs) Yeah, but for me, it's because this is so much about the gimmick, and that is the weak part for it. I want to know more about this protagonist. I want to know what he's learned from this. I I want it to mean something more than it is. You know, I think of Nolan's body of work And psychology, yeah, identity and who are we, you know. Those Batman films is all about becoming a symbol, becoming something. Here, this is a psychological film. I've I've sat through a 70-minute session with a shrink. I don't have a diagnosis, and that is the biggest problem for me. That said, it's well-constructed. It's fun to watch. It's fun seeing all these reveals and all the twists and all the turns. Just because it's it's not a more significant doesn't mean it's not a recommend. Yeah, it, it's a recommend. It's fun to watch. It, it's fun seeing this early Nolan and, and seeing, you know, we'll I think we'll talk a lot more about these themes and these tricks that he does throughout his other films. And so as a student film for 5,000 bucks or 5,000 pounds, whatever it was, and he didn't even go to film school. Very impressive. And yeah, I give this a solid recommend. Stewart. Yeah, that's right. I needed to grade a little on the curve. This is an excellent first film. When you look at the constraints that he was faced with, I mean, yeah, a remarkable work. I I mean, anyone should be so happy to spend $5,000 in this way and have these results. I mean, an an incredible job. It's a rough production. I recognize some people don't want to watch a movie this unpolished. I do think the primary appeal, the primary audience for this will be aspiring filmmakers and Nolan completist. If you love some of his other works, you're going to see a lot of where it came from. Here, I think he shows you his box. I do think that Nolan is being personal here. You know, he lived in this neighborhood. The inspiration for this story came out of him being robbed. I also know that he has some troubles with his older brother, who has somewhat of a criminal life, and who I'm wondering if he is not the model for Cobb. But I think that there's a lot to learn about Nolan in this movie. So if you're a fan of him, definitely check it out. But if you're more just looking for a good time and a mystery, I think you'll still like it. It's a solid recommend. 
I don't think it's one of his best. I also don't think it's his worst, but I think it's where you want to start as we go through the rest of his films here. And I'm just so excited to be in Nolan universe. And I'm going to disagree with some of what you've said, Stuart. This is a low-budget production, and that can be a barrier. Go back and listen to our review of those dollar babies in the Night Shift collection. I mean, a lot of low-budget productions just are so full of bad acting and bad camera work and grainy film, low lighting. We did just do corn. Yeah. (laughs) Shit. Even Genesis looked better than Disciples of the Crow. But I don't feel like this was marred by amateurish filmmaking the way I feel like it is for, say, El Mariachi. That this movie was made as cheap as you said shocks the hell out of me because it looks more expensive than that. And I came into this thinking I would have to grade on a curve, especially when I saw the length and realized that this wasn't really made for cinemas. It was made for festivals. And after he became somebody, then IFC went, oh, let's release this. But I thought I'd come in here and be like, for what it is, and then give my recommendation. But the truth is, 15 minutes into this movie, I'd forgotten most of the low budget. The biggest problem to me is... The audio, the second biggest is lack of establishing shots and setting shots and things like that. Just a few technical things. But as a common moviegoer, I didn't have to keep this at arm's length the way I do most amateur productions, which is what this is. So grading it not on a curve, just as any other movie I would grade here for now playing, I'm going to give this a strong recommend if you haven't listened to this podcast. If you know nothing about it, you're going to have a great time with that puzzle box. If you've listened to this, though, I'm still going to give it a recommend. It's a good movie. I liked watching it. I went back. I watched it again. I I did it because I wanted to make sure that I caught all the details so we could talk about them on this podcast. I also did it because I enjoyed the movie. And I'm like, wow, that was good. That was quick. Let me see it again and just watch it when I'm not typing notes on a keyboard and just allow the experience of the film to wash over me. If I saw this film and I was a multimillionaire, yeah, I'd happily cut this man a check to do his next film, Memento. I think that this is a sign of talent, and I agree, Stuart. This is not his worst film. Uh, I mean, obviously, I'm giving it a recommend, and I've already not recommended one of his films. It's not his best film. I do think that he remade this film as Memento, our film we're going to discuss next week. The similarities in editing structure, in crime drama, in twists. There's just way too many. But I love Memento and I really like following. So yeah, a good hearty recommend. Yay! Three green arrows. When's the last time? I can't remember quite literally. I think it was on the donation series. Yeah, no, those we tend to. But yeah, I just mean on the main feed. It's it's been a while and I'm hoping we get a couple more. Yeah, Memento. The Americans were willing to see what he could do on a bigger budget. The British, not so much. So we came to America, and we'll talk about the results next week. In the meantime, if you're wanting for more crime, well, why don't you go to the hood with us on Friday? Yes, Leprechaun in the hood. I'm not going to spoil it for anyone. I'm just going to say you want to be a gold or platinum donor this Friday. You just don't (laughs) want to be left out. (laughs) Yeah, Arnie makes another sound. So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And we'll be back next week with Memento. That's it. I mean, if you've got any um, questions, then... One or two. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Just became irresistible. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another in-depth movie review. Meaning he took the bait and he's hooked. God, it's perfect. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of other films such as Shutter Island, Gangs of New York, The Wolf of Wall Street, Avatar, 2001, A Space Odyssey, The Batman series, and hundreds more. There's some burning ambition inside you, isn't there? And at the NowPlayingPodcast.com homepage, you can find a link to our forums where you can discuss these films as well as links to Now Playing's Twitter and Facebook pages, where you can chat with the hosts and read written movie reviews. I wasn't following you. I, I, I just thought you looked interesting. 
If you enjoy Now Playing, please support the show. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website. Or you can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and more at the Now Playing Cafe Press store. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. So how did it feel? Great. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Jesus Christ! Do you think they believed you? <laughs> of course they didn't fucking believe me. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Now Playing is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. Yeah, I guess that covers the useful stuff. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Yep, got my notes. Um... Got to call up the cast list. Nobody you've ever heard of. Pretty much. Christopher Nolan directs his college friends. <laughs> <laughs> this woman he's following, she wasn't blonde originally. She was dark-haired. She went bottle blonde, like Marilyn Monroe. I'm wondering, are these his fantasies come to life? When did we see she was dark-haired? In the strip of photo that he has, that he takes from her box. Oh, I didn't notice those were dark-haired photos. I just thought it was a dark film. It's black and it's white. It's a black... It's, it's a... It doesn't capture color. <laughs> and the actors give me something that's totally subtextual. <clears throat> a frog in my throat. <laughs> that's why they were so hard to understand. <laughs>